Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we continue our study of this wonderful piece of literature, the Gospel of John. The passage that we're going to look at in detail this morning is chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. In order to get the flow of thought, there might be some people who were not here last week, and in order for you to know where we were, it'd be good for us to begin with verse 36 of the 18th chapter to see what's going on here. Jesus is being tried by the procurator of Rome in the region of Jerusalem. His name is Pilate. You probably are familiar with the story in some way. Verse 36, Jesus answered Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might be not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. I'm going to pray this prayer from the Word as we prepare to look into this passage. It's found in the Psalms, the 19th chapter. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. A man was wearing a t-shirt 
and on the front of it, it said, the only good language is a dead language. And on the back, it said that Latin is a dead language. And it's a funny language, basically, is what he was communicating. Some of you were put through the ringer by Latin study when you were going to high school. I had that experience myself. But a careful study of the English language would indicate that it is anything but a dead language. 10% of our language in English comes directly from Latin. When you put together the Greek involvement and the Latin involvement in our language, you find that over half of the words are derived in some way from either Latin or Greek or a combination of those two languages. For instance, let me give you some things that you're familiar with. On your money, most of it, there would be this Latin saying, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. It speaks about the unity of our nation and the desire of our founding fathers. Another phrase is carpe diem. If you saw Dead Poet Society, you know that Robin Williams' character would say to his class, carpe diem. And it means seize the day. It meant it in those days. It still means that today. It was a term which was used in war. My own social fraternity when I was in college had as its watchword, labor omnia wicket, which translated means work conquers all. Then, if we were to look more carefully into all the words that are derived from Latin into English, we would find in the fields of technology and science, 60% of the words come from either Latin or a combination of Latin and Greek. Which leads me to one more of these sayings, creatio ex nihilo. We saw how our women are going to be having a study on the fact that God created the heavens and the earth which is absolutely true. It was no accident. It takes someone with an incredible imagination to believe this world, when carefully studied, came out of something from somewhere else. It is true that God is the creator. He created the world out of nothing. And then in this passage that we're looking at, there's this saying in verse 5, Behold the man. And in Latin, that would have read like this or be heard like this, ecce homo, see the man. This is the way that Pilate presented Jesus after holding a trial with Jesus as the one who was accused. And he says, behold the man. It's no secret to many of you that I'm a big baseball fan and my favorite team is the St. Louis Cardinals. My grandfather was a devotee of the Cardinals. My father was a fan. I'm a fan. My son is a fan. My grandson. I'm proud to say there are five generations of the Woods family who are St. Louis Cardinals fans. When I was a boy, my favorite baseball player was a man named Stan Musial. That name means little to most of you probably, but he was at the time arguably the greatest hitter in the National League of professional baseball, if not all of baseball. Some followers of Ted Williams 
from the American League would disagree with that. But he was known as Stan the Man. And when he was called Stan the Man, it was those who called him way of saying, he is the greatest. He is in a league of his own. And certainly he was. Until another player in the Cardinal system came up about 22 years ago. His name was Albert and still is Albert Pujols. And he began to be called several years into his tenure in deference to Stan the Man Musial who was still alive. He began to be known as El Hombre, the man. And certainly he lived up to that. But there is only one the man in the universe, in all of history, in whether it's sports or science or technology or any field of learning, and that person is Jesus Christ. It would escape our notice if it had not been drawn to me, and I want to share it with you, and some of you are more astute than I, so probably you've already seen this. When the Jewish leadership who were dead set on getting Jesus crucified, when they spoke to Pilate about Him, they could not bring themselves to call His name. In fact, in two places in this section of Scripture, He describes Jesus as that man or this man. He doesn't, they don't call Him the man, this man. They had such hatred for Christ, such animosity for Christ, they could not dignify Him by calling Him by His name, and they certainly would not have called Him what Pilate called him. Do you remember how the high priest Caiaphas in the 12th chapter of John was having a discussion with all the leaders? And they were talking about how can we get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth? And it was going on and on and on. And so they began to talk about having him put to death. And then Caiaphas said, not knowing what he was saying, in fact, John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that he said this. It was from the Lord. And what he said was, it is better for one man to die than the whole nation to go the way of all men and die itself. He didn't know he was talking about Jesus as the man, the only man who could die for Israel. And by the way, the only man who could die for all other people who are outside the venue of being a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is the man. Pilate clearly understood that. His interaction to Jesus perhaps had begun on, well, this is another duty I have to perform as Caesar's representative to Palestine where Jerusalem was and consequently, he was probably not really happy about having to administer this trial. We know from our study of the way of Roman law that there were four aspects of every trial. I touched on these in great detail last week. I'm just going to jog your memory for a moment. The first would be the accusation or the indictment, we might call it. And we see Jesus was accused. And the accusation found in Luke 23 was three parts. The first part was that he was perverting the nation. 
That's quite a, an allegation, isn't it, against Jesus? Especially when you know about Jesus. He was anything but a perver perverting person. He was quite the opposite. But they said he was perverting, and maybe that word might better be translated misleading the nation. And they were referring to an event that occurred early on in his public ministry at the first Passover that he attended once his Messiahship had been authenticated by the Spirit descending on him like a dove at the sight of Jesus' baptism at the hands of his cousin, John the Baptist. And as he went to the temple in Jerusalem, that place where he had visited at least once before, you may recall as a boy, a 12-year-old boy, and his parents lost track of him, and when they found him, what was he doing? He was sitting with the teachers of Israel, and he was asking them questions, then he was responding to them, and they became the taught, and he became the teacher at a, the age of 12. He's back there at the age of 30 or so, and he finds the temple being desecrated by the selling of animals that would be sacrificed. It was justified in the minds of the leaders of Israel to do that, to make it more convenient for people from far distances to come and have their sacrificial lamb sacrificed in their own dwellings for the Passover celebration. But Jesus, you know, cleaned the temple out. The first of two such clearings, one at the very beginning of His public ministry, then this time. So they were saying, He is leading the nation astray from our customs. And He is just fouling all things up for our people. He even says that He's going to destroy the temple and in three days He can raise it up. And they were just livid with anger about that. The next thing they said that He had done that was improper and was something that was against their customs and laws, and really against Rome's law too. This is where they were getting close to a valid kind of argument to have Jesus convicted. They said, He's even telling our people, we who are Jews, not to pay taxes to Rome, to Caesar. Well, Jesus responded, you may remember the episode that they were alluding to. They were lying about it, just like they did on every case when they were trying to pin some crime punishable by death upon Jesus. He said to one of his apostles, find me a coin. He found the coin and he held it up for all around to see. And he asked, whose image is on this coin? And everyone knew whose image it was. It was a Roman coin. Every Roman coin, every piece of money had the bust of Caesar on it. And of course they said Caesar's. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That would cause us as believers in Christ, if we are followers of Christ, we're supposed to pay our taxes. I read about a pastor on the Sunday after April the 15th as he was getting ready to give the offertory prayer, the offering was going to be received. And he said this in his prayers, O oh Lord, now let help all of us to give according to our Forms 1040. He was getting right down to digging into their lives at that point, wasn't he? Well, Jesus then said, by saying that, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, 
and unto God what is God's. Now, where is the image of God embossed? Where would one find the image of God? Every human being is created in the image of God. Granted, that image is severely marred and blurred in our lives before we come to Christ because we have the problem of sin to deal with. And that's what Christ came to do. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So when we come to know Jesus, what happens? He comes to indwell us. And He begins the process of restoring His image in us. Jesus was not about telling people not to pay their taxes. Certainly. He was not. And there in Luke chapter 23, the third thing that Jesus speaks of in the second verse is that Jesus claimed that He was a king. Now, Jesus had done that. We just read about it, didn't we? In the conversation that Pilate had with Jesus, He said, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He was making the distinction between His kingdom, which is, in a sense, an invisible kingdom. It's visible in the hearts of all who know Him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved becomes instantly a member of the kingdom of God. Jesus was asked, where is your kingdom? This is found in Luke, the 18th chapter. Where is your kingdom? And he says, my kingdom is within you. His kingdom's in us. If you believe in Jesus and He is your Lord, then you are part of His kingdom. A church like ours that is far from perfect, a church, however, which is committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And we are to reflect the person who is our king. We are to serve him with gladness. So Jesus is, and he did not deny the accusation that he was the king of the Jews. What they wanted to do with that was to get Jesus caught on a case for treason. And so this goes. There is an accusation. And then there's an examination. We read part of it just a few moments ago out of 18. It's a rather intriguing examination that's given. And then there is a defense. Jesus gave a defense. Read the last part of the 18th chapter. And the defense is followed by a decision. And it is a decision which is used at least three times in this section of Scripture. We read one already from chapter 18. We've read two in the first seven verses. I find no guilt in Him. Who had the power to decree the death of Jesus? None other than Pilate, the representative of Caesar. He had to give the okay. Obviously, something changed in that short interchange between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus, in a sense, would, was putting Pilate 
on trial. When Pilate asks him questions in the latter part of chapter 18, Jesus comes back with questions. He was establishing his authority right there because he is the king of kings. He was not in any way agitating him in direct ways, but he was just speaking to him. And then the verdict came as we spoke of here. I think something transpired in the heart of Pilate. I'm not saying he came to know Christ. That remains to be seen. We won't know whether that happened until we get to heaven ourselves. But what I sense is there's this transformation that begins to occur in Pilate's viewpoint. Undoubtedly, he said, I've never had a case like this. I've never had someone who answers to the question, are you the king, that he has a kingdom. Even though it's not of this world, I've never had one. And this man does not in any way appear to me to be a lunatic. He's not out of his mind. He's not a man who's trying to overthrow the reign of Caesar in Palestine. He's not an insurrectionist like Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He's different. And it began to work on him. He saw things in Jesus that astonished him. Look at verse 7, I mean 1, excuse me, of chapter 19 of John. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. What had Pilate done right before that? He says, what is truth? In verse 38 of John 18. And then without saying anything else to Jesus, he bolts out of the confines of his headquarters there, the Praetorium in Jerusalem. He bolts and he goes out to the religious leader, leaders who are waiting, I'm sure, anxiously to see what the verdict was, hoping against hope that Jesus would be handed over for crucifixion. He comes out and he said, why don't you take Barabbas and let me have Jesus and set him free? They said, no. They began to cry, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Let him go free. Well, what we see there is something probably changing in Pilate. He had grown, and this is a little sanctified imagination. Don't take this to the bank, but I think there's evidence of this, that he had grown to admire this man who was, in effect, an enemy because he was saying he's the king of kings. That happens sometimes in war. Remember, Pilate, was born in Spain in a city that still exists, Seville. When the Roman legions were making their way from Italy into Germanicus, which would be modern-day Germany to fight the people in that area, he joined the army and he had undoubtedly a position of a leader, maybe a centurion in the army. And as he went, he fought. Undoubtedly, he saw men under his command die saw many more wounded. He himself could have been wounded, but he lived and he came back. But probably at some point along the way in battle, he had an odd sort of admiration for the enemy, the courage of the enemy. And in Jesus, undoubtedly, he saw something 
He had never seen, he had tried other cases probably that would eventuate in crucifixion. But this man was different. His apostles saw this early on in their time with him. Most everybody in the room knows the story of Jesus being on the Sea of Galilee. He's fatigued. He falls asleep and a big storm comes up. And these mostly sailor apostles, they were bailing like crazy for fear that they're going to go down and drown in the Sea of Galilee. And finally, they wake Christ up. He silences the storm. And they said, what kind of man is this? who even the wind and the sea obeys. They were on the right track, weren't they? They knew that Jesus was a great man already, a marvelous teacher, a man who was in their presence doing miracles, but they had not yet put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Could this be God come in the flesh? Jesus was a man of great courage, but great composure. Let's talk about this matter of scourging. Many of you have heard what this was about. It was not uncommon for a person who was, and it would have to have been a man, no women were ever crucified as far as the historical record goes. But many times to preclude, pre, be a prelude, not a preclusion, but a, a prelude prelude to the crucifixion, what would happen is that it was declared by the one giving the verdict and the sentence that the person would be flogged. There would be someone designated who had a whip, and along the whip, sometimes it would be a whip with many tails, not just one, and there would be sharp objects of bone from animals in it, and then balls of metal, and maybe even glass in it. And so what would happen, the victim would have his hands tied, and it was a big pole, and his hands would be let down on the opposite side of the pole, and his back would be arched. And then the one who was given the responsibility to flog or to scourge would begin his work. And only strong men were given this work. And each time that a lash was given, the leather would wrap around with all those elements embedded in it to pull on the body of the individual. And after several of those kinds of lashes, many people who were under that lash would pass out from the excruciating pain. Jesus withstood it. And there's no evidence that Jesus came back at the people who were doing it. Christ, who said, don't you know when He was going to the cross, if I wanted to, I can call down legions of angels and wipe all of you out. But Jesus was submitting to His responsibility to die for us. And He suffered not only the incredible pain, but the humiliation of being beaten in public like that. Remember who he is. He was a courageous man who had incredible strength, evidently, because he did not pass out from the record. We see nothing that would indicate this. There's greater detail in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the flogging or the scourging. 
Verse 2 says, And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They did not do that to honor Jesus. They did it to mock Jesus. And what we do know, a crown of thorns, are any of you familiar with the, the tree called a locust tree? In the part of the country I grew up in, locust trees were many. And they have spike-like thorns on them, sometimes two inches long. And believe you me, they hurt. The kind of trees from which this thorn crown was fashioned would have been such a tree. You know how you bleed in your head area, maybe more profusely than you do other parts of your body? Can you imagine Jesus and the mocking and the humiliation? But he still maintained not only his courage, but his composure. He didn't lash out at them. In other cases, I'm sure they had been cursed and spit on. But look what the Scripture says in verse 3 about the behavior of these soldiers. And they began to come to Him. The idea here is they kept on coming to Him. They didn't come to Him and do what is told next just one time and say to Him. They kept on saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give Him blows in the face. Keep on. They kept on coming and they kept on saying and they kept on giving him blows in the face. The words in the face do not occur in the original language. They're provided by the translators to make sense for us because these blows would have been in the face. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your enemy hits you, what are you supposed to do? Hit him back? That's what my mother told me one time when I was being bullied by somebody. And it worked temporarily, by the way. I don't know if I've repented of that yet. But. but what does Jesus say? If someone hits you in the face and it would be open-handed, slaps, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. And what would that require the one who hits you to do? He's hit you, let's say, with his right hand, and then he would come back and hit you backhanded. That's an insult in and of itself. Jesus was getting that more than one time, at least twice and probably multiple times. And verse 4 says, And Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing out to you, him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. This man was innocent. That's what Pilate says in Pilate's court, the court of Caesar, the court of Rome. He had been declared not guilty, already declared twice. He's innocent. And he's hoping, I'm sure, by bringing out Jesus in this beaten condition, hardly recognizable because of the brutality of what he had undergone, that there would be some sympathy that would be part of the response of the people. But look at verse 6. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Wow. Jesus is admirable in many ways. This was his greatest moment to this point in his life, probably. 
by the way in which he conducted himself. Do you know that there were others who were opposed to Jesus besides these Jewish leaders who credited him as being without any sin? Judas, Judas the betrayer. After he betrayed the Lord, what did he do? He got really guilty feeling, which he was guilty, and he takes the 30 pieces and he throws it at them. And he says, I am guilty of shedding innocent blood. This was a man who had lived close to Christ for three years with the rest of the apostles. He had a bird's eye view of Jesus and His conduct. He had seen no inconsistency in Him. But He Himself, the man who betrayed Christ, said, I am innocent of, I'm guilty of innocent blood. Claudia, remember Claudia? Claudia, the wife of Pilate, we talked about her last week shortly. She was the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. She Pilate's wife had a dream. In the dream, she was warned not to do any harm, to warn her husband not to do any harm of Jesus because he was an innocent man. Read the account in the Gospels. Then there are others. Herod. Herod in chapter 23, he was the titular king. He was not a real king. He was a puppet king. But he said the same thing about Jesus He's innocent. Everybody who had any contact with Jesus for a short while of time quickly concluded he's innocent. The two thieves on the cross, when Jesus first was nailed to the cross, they were giving Him what for? And they were mocking Him. Hey, if you're the King of Jews, bring us off the crosses. Get down yourself and bring us off. Jesus didn't respond to them. But what did they hear Jesus say? What did He say? What did Jesus say from the cross about those who crucified Him, mocked Him, spit upon Him? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These men didn't have any of that in them. And perhaps they had witnessed previous crucifixions before their own. And they'd never seen anyone have that kind of response. The other response was one that they were giving, cursing and all kinds of things like that. The centurion, he was the commander of the detail which crucified Christ. And when Christ finally said, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit, what did he say? Surely this man is innocent. This man who had watched man after man be crucified under his duty. And then even the crowd had Luke 23, the crowd which had jeered at him, had mocked him, many of them, they said essentially the same thing. He's innocent. What was the source of Jesus' innocence? Well, let's let the Gospel writers tell, and you know already probably, he was no ordinary man. I've said that for the third time now. He was beyond ordinary. There's really no word that can capture who he was except for the fact that he is, was, and always will be God. He was God in the flesh. The way Mark begins his gospel, he talks about the gospel of Christ, 
who is the Son of God. What about Matthew? Matthew describes how when the angel of the Lord is speaking to Joseph, the foster father-to-be of Jesus, and Joseph is about to turn and get out of the life of Mary and really expose her, although he was trying to be discreet about it. He says, this is Emmanuel. The child she is bearing is fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. And what does Emmanuel mean? You don't know what Emmanuel means? God is with us. So, Matthew records the deity of Jesus Christ as well. In Luke, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, their initial response was one of stepping back in fear. But what we discover, the angels saying to them, after having say, said, don't be afraid, today is born in the city of David, Bethlehem, and He is Christ the Lord, a Savior for you. He spoke to the shepherds, and the shepherds, you may remember, were at the lowest end of the socioeconomic pole, as it were. They were lowlifes as far as the people of Israel were concerned. But Jesus came to save them. Do you know, it doesn't matter where you are in your life. And I'm not talking about socioeconomics here. I'm talking about spiritually. Jesus Christ died for you. He is your Savior. And we're going to talk in a moment how that can become real in your life. So, these great representatives of the Gospel speak. John, I saved him for last. What does he say? In the introduction to the Gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and from Him nothing came into being that has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overpower it. Jesus is God. Later, He says in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was, in His pre-incarnate state, He was God. He became God. He did not lose His deity. He maintained His deity the entire time. He humbled Himself under the mighty hand of God that in due time God might exalt Him, and He did exalt His Son because His Son became humble even to the point of submitting in obedience to God the Father's will that He die on the cross for us so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, any being who has an accountability to God will one day bow in humble adoration against their will, but they will bow, many will. We who know Jesus, we have bowed in our heart to the Lord. We have believed in Him as our Lord. And we need to live in a life of obedience to Christ because we recognize His entitlement to our honor and to our allegiance and service to Him. Even God the Father, 
chorus witness to Jesus at his baptism, remember? The Holy Spirit descended like a dove and the Father says, this is my Son whom I am well pleased with. The Holy Spirit. Does He bear witness to Christ? Absolutely. In fact, He's the one that would stimulate you or me or anybody else to bear witness to Christ because Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth and He bears witness of me through people like us. Isn't that amazing? That God would use you or me to be a mouthpiece for Him and a representative for Christ in sharing the, Jesus Himself. He was not that forward in declaring Himself God, but He said it in a very undeniable way. He said, before Abraham was, I am. What's He saying? He's saying, I lived before Abraham. Do you know how many years Abraham lived before Jesus said that statement? 1,400 years at least, maybe longer, depending on which scholar you read. Over a thousand years. Before Abraham was, I am. I am, of course, is the name that God gives Himself. Yahweh, Jehovah, we say. So he was saying, I'm God. In the book of John, chapter 10, again John says this, quoting Jesus. He says, Jesus said, I and the Father of one. And do you remember what the rulers of the Jews did when He made that statement, I and the Father of one? The Bible says they picked up stones. And why would they have picked up stones? What were stones for? To kill someone who had blasphemed against God. But the Bible says God protected him. By the way, Jehovah's Witnesses, when they're asked about that question, we saw how our brother Caleb Harold is going to be, Harrelson rather, is going to be teaching on this subject. Uh, they knew, I'm talking about the men who picked up the stone when he said, I and the Father are one. Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, they're just one in purpose. Well, that is true, but it's much greater than that. He and the Father are one. They are unified in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, I could go on and on, but it's unnecessary. I want to talk about one more witness. Thomas. Doubting Thomas. You know that, don't you? You know about Doubting Thomas. He's given a bad rap, really, overall. But Thomas, when he came into the upper room on the first Easter Sunday, as we would call it, do you recall he came there and Jesus had just recently left, having visited the other apostles who were gathered there? And they said, Thomas, the Lord is risen. He's been here. And he said, in typical Thomas fashion, he said, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and I put my hand in the wound that was thrust into his side by a spear to make sure he was dead, I won't believe. Well, one week passed. Guess who shows up? Thomas is there this time. And who is it? It's Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He lets 
Thomas investigate. And Thomas, when he sees the wound in the side of Jesus and he looks at his hands, what was his response to Jesus? My Lord and my God. He recognized who Jesus is. We must recognize that Jesus is certainly an incredible man. And His incredibility is the result of His being fully man and fully God, which allowed Him to be the only sacrifice which could be given for my sin and your sin. And which also indicates that the only proper response I give to Jesus is one of submission to Him and gratitude. You know, the Lord doesn't want us to grovel on the floor like some people would say we as Christians teach. No. He wants us to humble ourselves and the result of that is that we will be who we were created to be to begin with. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden they were created to honor the Lord. And they were doing quite well. We don't know how many years passed until they decided to take the bait that Satan gave them and seek equality with God. The parable that we read from Matthew 25 about the ten virgins. You know the story. They were waiting for their master to return. They grew sleepy, but... They all had a lamp because when they heard that He was coming, they wanted to light their lamps and go out and welcome Him in. But what happened? Five of them had oil in their lamps. All of them had a flask that could carry oil. The other five had been procrastinating probably, not thinking the coming of their master would be that soon. They can do it manana. Get, get their flask filled them and they'll fill up their lamps. But then there comes a sleep over all ten of them. They're tired and there comes this cry, the Master is coming. And they all awaken just like that. Of course, they want to go greet their Master. The five who had lamps filled with oil, oil is representative of the Holy Spirit, by the way, in Scripture. What they did, they got up and they were ready. The other five got up and were in a panic. And they begged the ones who had oil, could I have some of yours? And they said, no, you go get your own. So they did the only thing that would be reasonable. They went and got some oil, but by the time they got back to the banquet that was going to accompany the return of their master, the door was locked. They banged on the door, but they could not gain admission. Do you know, the Bible says... Today is the day of your salvation. I would imagine there's at least one man or woman in this room. The Lord's been speaking to your heart, not just today, but for a period of time. And He's been saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her and give her or him eternal life. I'm going to dine with you. Jesus Christ came as a man, an extraordinary person because He was fully God and fully man, and He died for us. He calls us to believe in Him by acknowledging Him as our Lord.
and the one who saves us from our sin. Would you bow your head? Can you truthfully say in your heart of hearts that you have turned your life over to Jesus, making Him Lord? And if you can say that, it's one step from there to saying to Jesus, Lord, use me in this world. If you have not called Him Lord and meant it, you need to say to Jesus, take control, Lord. I surrender my life to You. Please, Lord, forgive me and come to live in me and use me to bring honor to You. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.